You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy in chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, we're going to take a break from Romans between chapters 11 and 12 is a good a good time uh, to take a, a break from Romans. If you remembered in our discussion of the outline of, of Romans, really Romans is, is divided almost in, in half there. Uh, the first half is, is very doctrinal. Uh, and then the second half is more uh, practical and, and builds on that theological section. So we're going to take a little break there. We're going to do a short series. And we're going to call it Alone. So we're going to talk about five different alones. And I think it's going to be beneficial this time. Second Timothy chapter 3, and I'll start in verse 16. If you would stand as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. tempted to back up to 10, but I'll, I'll do that during the, during the message and we'll get context there. But let's just focus our attention on verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray as we seek to, to grasp the significance of that text. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and as we come to a a text of Scripture and a, a, a principle of reformation and in rediscovering the importance of, of Scripture in church history, Lord, I pray that you would help us to discern the place and the role and the moral imperative it is for us to submit and come to the word of God humbly because you are its author. Lord, we pray that you would work in a tremendous way in our hearts and our lives this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've taken quite a few Christian history classes over the years. I, I love Christian history. I remember in, in Bible college, at Montana Bible College, it was one of the, the worst cases of syllabus shock that I've ever had. I remember thinking that it was, it was humanly impossible to read that much. But I quickly realized that in that class, that not only was it possible to read that much, it was also necessary if one was to understand the history of the church. And it wasn't long in the class until I was completely convinced of the necessity of knowing the history of the church. Why? I think we could get into this quite long, but suffice to say this, we owe those that have gone before us a great debt of gratitude. 
through the movements, the controversies, the, her- the heresies, the struggle. In so many areas, those things have served to actually shape who we are as Christians. And it should have. For instance, the Arian controversy in the church that arose when the church was, was still in its infancy. It divided the empire at the time. Constantine finally had to gather the church leaders from the empire together to, to, to settle the question of Jesus' relationship to the Father. Arius said that Jesus was created. And he said he, that because that's what the Bible says. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Athanasius said, wait a minute. No, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and he is eternal. And the empire is divided. Constantine calls the church leaders together. In 325, the leaders got together at the Council of Nicaea to decide the issue. They decide with Athanasius the right, the truth. And the Nicene Creed comes from this. But not the Nicene Creed that you know. That came years later in 381 at the Council of Constantinople where they dealt with the same issue again because that did not put it to rest. The empire was still divided. And out of the Council of Constantinople in 381, we get the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, which you know probably is the Nicene Creed. Did that put it to rest? Actually, Arianism lingers today perhaps best known in the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? There's nothing new under the sun, just an old heresy repackaged. But here's my point. How did the church deal with these false teachings and come through them unstained? For instance, it would have been a lot easier for those in attendance at those ecumenical councils in 325 and 381 to come to the conclusion that each group based their views on Scripture. So actually there was room in the Christian faith for both views. Can you think of the potential ramifications of that? We would have both camps within Orthodox Christianity today. Jesus was created, no, he's eternal. But the statement of the church at that time was that Arianism was outside the bounds of Scripture. That isn't what Scripture taught. And we have a creed that summarizes the biblical teaching on the matter. And the purpose of that creed isn't to replace Scripture, it's to uphold its authority. Now, I bring this up at the onset for a couple of reasons. First of all, to show you that the church, by and large, can fall into grave error. To see Jesus as created is to call into question the entire atonement or the purpose for which Christ died. Christ must be human in order to be our sacrifice. He also must be God in order to redeem us. In the case of Arius, Jesus was really neither. Secondly, When the church has these moments of error or controversy, what happens next usually seeks to to clarify the truth and the importance of the word of God for the church going forward. And sometimes the more one reflects on these controversies, these heresies in the years following them, the more the orthodox position or the right position is clarified 
as people diligently seek to work through the word of God on these issues. Now, having said all that, we look back at the Protestant Reformation and realize that it was one of the most pivotal moments in the entire history of the church. And one reason for this was that we see the struggle in the minds of those who were contending for the truth against the grievous error of the backdrop in in history of the backdrop of, of Rome. And then coming out of that, the orthodox or truth had a much fuller expression going forward as the church took seriously the command of of Jude to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Jason Allen is the president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He says it this way. He says, and I quote, for evangelicals, remembering and applying the lessons of the Protestant Reformation is of utmost importance. The reformers are our theological forebears. They fought the good fight. They finished their course. They rediscovered and proclaimed the faith. As evangelicals, we are sons and daughters of the reformers. And the faith we hold today is summarized beautifully in the five solas defended by the reformers. In other words, our faith was rediscovered then. And it's summarized in that. The Reformation, that controversy, that, those heresies, those struggles clarified for the church what we hold dear and what we believe. Alan says some interesting things here. The first thing is that evangelicals must remember and apply the lessons of the Reformation. Think about that for a moment. One might wonder what the lessons of the Reformation are, and we'll get to that in in a moment, but there's an an old adage that says, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it, and I think that's the essence of what Alan is saying here. Just look back at the Arian controversy. A lot of people don't realize that the Christological error of Jehovah's Witness is nothing new. And it was actually dealt with in the context of history. We could go on and on and talk about how so-called departures from the truth. And we could talk about how those things are just revisions of past errors that have already been dealt with in the life of the church. We're just unaware of them. What Jason Allen is rightly saying here is that the Reformation for evangelicals is one of the most, if not the most, pivotal moment in the history of the church that has served to shape who we are as evangelicals. Why? Because as Allen said, in the Reformation, we see the Reformers both fighting for and contending for the truth. And in that specific historic Backdrop. They both discovered and proclaimed the biblical truth, and it's precisely because of that we owe them such a great debt of gratitude. So then the question becomes, what exactly is it that the reformers discovered or rediscovered? What is it they contended for? What is it they proclaimed? In other words, why do we owe them such a great debt of gratitude? We've seen this generally. We said that we always learn from history and controversies in the life of the church, and they help us to discern truth over and against error. In the case of the church, the church had fallen into such great error 
not on, not on one singular doctrinal point, but the church itself was characterized by such grave error that something so drastic needed to happen to push her to the, the biblical truth in order that, that she would recover the gospel because the gospel itself had been lost. We say this great change started with an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther in 1517 who set out to discuss 95 points or concerns that he had with the church. He posted those those concerns, that that thesis on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And of course, what happened next was an explosion. And over time, as Luther and others started to clarify their arguments against the the abuses in the church, they were seeking to, to reform it, not to split from it, by the way, And as they wrote books and commentaries, interacted with others, we see a rediscovery of the Christian faith. The truth that was the truth of the gospel that was built on the foundation of the apostles and and prophets that hadn't been recognized for years and years. The people at the time were totally unaware of. Now, as we look back on all of this, what took years? we see a number of truths emerge as great importance. But there's something else interesting, and that is that the reformers solidified their beliefs around these central tenets of the Reformation, and those central tenets of the Reformation were all clarified by the word alone. Let me put it this way. There were really five distinctives of the Reformation that we're going to look at. Scripture, Faith, grace, Christ, and the glory of God. But what we see is that when the word alone follows those distinctives, it has extreme importance. It magnifies it. Jason Allen says it this way, it carries massive ramifications for theology, for the church, and for your Christian life. So what we want to do for the next several messages here is to take these alones and to use the Latin, these solas, and just unpack them briefly. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll see great ramifications of the word alone attached to these fundamental points of the Reformation and highlight the ramifications that each one of these things has for theology, for the church, and for our Christian life. So we start with Scripture. And if you think about what we just said, that if the Reformation was a rediscovery of the Christian faith, it must have had something to say of Scripture, since we know that Scripture is our book and that any truth that we have comes from it. So any rediscovery of the Christian faith must have at its foundations the Scripture. But the great problem here is that even many heretical groups claim exactly that. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, on their website, their official website, for instance, concerning the scriptures, it asks the question, is the Bible merely a book of human wisdom? And they write this, the Bible, also known as the Holy Scriptures, does contain many wise sayings. However, note the claim the Bible makes for itself. All scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. And there is much evidence to back that up. Consider the following. 
And then it lists a bunch of evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, we would say the same thing. In fact, in the message this morning, I'm appealing to the same text that they are. Here's my point. It's not enough for us to only appeal to Scripture or say that our beliefs come from Scripture, but we actually must submit to its authority. Many people and many groups cite Scripture, and many have some come to some absurd conclusions. For instance, I have a book on my shelf entitled God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. Some of you have heard about it. Listen to what he says about the Bible. He says this, a quote, like most theologically conservative Christians, I hold to what has often been called a high view of the Bible. That means I believe all scripture is inspired by God and authoritative for my life. While some parts of the Bible address cultural norms that do not directly apply to modern societies, all scripture is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 17. Sounds good. On the next page... He says that the book's purpose is to, quote, not accept a divide between more progressive Christians who support gay equality and conservative Christians who oppose it, but to envision a future in which all, and he puts emphasis on that word all, all Christians come to embrace and affirm their LGBT brothers and sisters without undermining their commitment to the Bible and its authority. In other words, the point of the book is to show that the traditional belief regarding homosexuality is wrong and sinful That traditional view is wrong. It's not a sin, and it ought to be embraced by all Christians. And this is what he does. He goes through the text of scriptures. He deals with homosexuality, shows that that each one of those texts, we can understand it differently. The plain meaning isn't so much the plain meaning anymore. Here's a guy that says he wants to take the Bible seriously, and he comes to a wild conclusion where what is called sin and damnable in the Bible is actually not. When one says that they believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and then come to conclusions that differ from others as to what constitutes sin, an understanding of the scriptures that that questions the whole traditional understanding of of marriage and the purpose of a relationship between a a man and a woman in marriage and the display of of Christ and his church that, that happens in marriage between a man and a woman. I'm trying to get you to see how serious this subject is. Yes, we appeal to Scripture. Yes, it is authoritative. It is inspired. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. One can say all of those things, but yet be found in great error. Error concerning the person of Christ. Error concerning the very nature of sin and rebellion against God. Now, I'm not saying some are capable of this error interpreting the Bible and others are not. That isn't true. We all are. I'm prone to error. I'm prone to let all sorts of things cloud my interpretation of certain texts. I can be wrong all the while affirming that Scripture is my supreme authority. This brings us to something very important, and that is that the truth of Scripture does not depend on one's interpreting it, but the author of it. 
The truth of Scripture does not depend on the one interpreting it, but the author of it. What makes the Scriptures authoritative is not that I deem them to be authoritative. They are authoritative regardless of what you or I think because of the author of them is our creator and our life hangs in his hands. And flowing from this, and hear this because it is important, and that is that one must acknowledge the scriptures to be an authoritative role in their life. In the believer's life, the scriptures must be submitted to. In other words, the doctrine of scripture then becomes a a moral imperative, a moral command. That in that, we are to acknowledge its authority in our lives. So in a real sense, the scriptures are authoritative because they are the very words of God written to us for our benefit. And because of that, we submit to them as God's governing word in our lives. Listen to how the Second London Baptist Confession puts it. It says this, The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed depends not on the testimony of a man or a church, but wholly on God who is truth itself. The author thereof, therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Does it just contain the words of God? It is the word of God. So we mentioned that the word alone, when it follows the word scripture, carries massive implications for theology, the church, the Christian life. And before we get into that, and to help us with that, let's just make it clear what we do not mean by the word alone. For instance, We do not mean only. We do not mean scripture only or solo scriptura. Scripture apart from anything else. This makes one a a biblicist in the worst sense. Let me just highlight two problems here. The first we've already really addressed somewhat, and that's how some people read the Bible apart from the context of, of history and how the church previously struggled and they fall into the, the trap that people did before leading them into the great error in the name of Scripture. But secondly, a Scripture-only approach actually serves to elevate every individual's interpretation of the Scriptures as authoritative. Does that make sense? Let me see if I can illustrate that. I'll say it again. A Scripture-only approach actually serves to elevate every individual's interpretation of the Scriptures as authoritative. In, in seminary, I wrote, I wrote my thesis on a movement whose main spokesperson was a guy by the name of Ed Stevens. He was convinced, Ed Stevens was convinced of the Reformation principle of of sola scriptura, and he used it to justify his conclusions. The problem with Stevens' conclusions is is that over the centuries of the church history, every creed, every confession developed in the church affirmed a personal, future, visible second coming of Jesus Christ. He said he believed that the scriptures taught that it had already happened and we missed it. I thought this was very interesting. He made a a great effort in suggesting that his views should be accepted. His views should be accepted as orthodox and even though he disagreed with what has been deemed essential in the orthodox faith because he grounded his entire argument in Scripture. His case was fascinating. He did it. 
He used scripture. And when confronted with the creeds and the confessions of the church, he rightly said, those creeds, those confessions can err. And that the only authoritative source is the scriptures. Therefore, he said, my interpretation is valid. What Stevens failed to understand, and what I attempted to address in my thesis, is that he actually didn't believe in sola scriptura. He actually didn't believe that principle. He believed in what is called solo scriptura, or scripture only. And when one takes this view, the problem is that there are about as many interpretations of the scripture as there are people who read it. And the other person has no choice but to see those interpretations as credible because they're appealing to scripture. Does that make sense? Think about it this way. Ed Stevens is in a room. He's in his room, sitting at his desk. And he reads through the New Testament. He comes to the conclusion, Jesus Christ has already returned and we missed it. It was a spiritual event. He then says, okay, I'm going to check this. And he turns to some, some commentaries on specific texts. Each one disagrees with his interpretation. Those texts all affirm a future second coming of Jesus. He then turns to historic creeds and confession. Each one of those disagrees with his interpretation of the scriptures. Then he goes on to some Bible scholars and, and pastors that he knows. And he tells them this newfound interpretation of the scriptures. And he shows them in the Bible where, they, where he found them. And each one of them offers him a sharp rebuke and point to the historical interpretation of those texts, point him to how the church on the foundation of Scripture over and over and again affirmed the future second coming of Jesus. And not only that, but they show in specific instances in church history where the issue had arisen before and the church emphatically affirmed a future coming of Jesus Christ. Stevens is on an island. Does that mean that Stevens is wrong? Everyone else is right? Not necessarily. We realize the scriptures are authoritative. Our, our interpretations are fallible, meaning that we can and do error. Can learned Bible scholars and pastors who have studied these issues before, can they fall into error? Absolutely. Can church councils and creeds err in their understanding of the scriptures? Absolutely. Can the most prolific commentators all agree on a future second coming and be in error? Yes, it is possible, I suppose, because all of those that we've listed are fallible. They're capable of error. Here's my point. Scripture alone does not mean that it is only Scripture in me, in my bedroom, and nothing else can and should aid in its understanding. Remember, it's the Scriptures who are unmistaken, not us. Therefore, the use of church history and others who are more qualified than we are in the original languages, who have spent time studying theology, who have dealt with these issues more than we have, have something to say and ought to be listened to on this. Some of my conclusion in my thesis is that Stevens and those who agreed with him on this, there are a few, are actually approaching the scriptures arrogantly in that they are elevating their own interpretation over and against all of this that happened in the life of the church. All that the church has continuously affirmed on the foundation of the scriptures. 
over and above with the church over and over again deemed to be heretical over the overwhelming evidence that they are wrong on this. There's a point in which I and you, no matter what we want, no matter what we desire to see and no matter what we desire to have happen, and no matter how bad we want to see something in the scriptures the way we want to see them, there has to be a point, a moment, in which we step back in all of the study and say, I submit. I submit to the word of God. I don't want to, but I, I, I do it. Because I can err. Overwhelming evidence is that I have erred in my understanding of this. Ed Stevens thinks to it. Let me give you one more short illustration, and that is the, the creed that we often hear these days. I have no creed but the Bible. Sounds good. Like it affirms scripture alone, but really what it's endorsing is twofold. It's endorsing scripture only, solo scriptura. It's endorsing that mentality that says we don't need anything else. My Bible and me, that's enough. Thus it endorses approaching the scriptures arrogantly and not humbly because what it is doing is elevating one's personal interpretation of the Bible over and above great scholars, church councils, creeds, and many in our lives who have studied these matters and are more capable than we are. We are fallible. We are prone to error. We need to recognize how prone to error we are. We need to go to, to others who know this who are the the top of their game in whatever subject we're dealing with. Who knows this subject the best? Let me read them. Let me see how they came to the conclusion they came to and then step back and say, will I submit? This is what I mean. Scripture alone, that doctrine is a moral imperative in our lives. We don't give the scriptures authority. God does that. He wrote it. It's his spirit that then takes it and uses it and his spirit guides us to truth and it will not be without work. It will not be without effort and this is where the moral imperative really comes in. You know how I know that? Because Paul told Timothy, it's gonna be work. 2 Timothy 2.15. So flip back a chapter. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed. In other words, a worker who works hard. At what? Rightly handling the word of truth. So we've talked quite a bit about what the word sola is not, namely solo scriptura. So now what do we mean by it? Let me just point to the the 1689 London Baptist Confession again. It says this concerning the scriptures. And and just in case somebody says, well, wait a minute, confessions are, are put over and above scripture. Listen to the confession talk about the scriptures. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. In other words, There are no other sufficient certain standards where one learns of their need of salvation, the nature of faith, and then how one lives out that faith. Of course, the confession here is clearly drawing from 2 Timothy 3, 
15 through 17. It even cites that as where it's drawing it from. So let's just go back to that and read that text again. And let's start and read it in context and start in verse 10. You, however, have followed, talking to Timothy, Paul's talking to Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that have happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lustra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, you in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Such a great text in so many ways. There's so much to it that we don't have time to comment on. But let me just, let's just notice a few things about the context of verses 16 and 17. Notice that Paul is speaking to Timothy. And the central theme in this section is his relationship to the scriptures. As, as Timothy seeks to, to minister to, to those under his care, Paul is encouraging him and exhorting him. Notice how he does this in verse 10. You have followed my teaching. This is a compliment that Paul is giving to to Timothy because Paul was teaching him the word of God. Timothy was Paul's disciple. Timothy was learning from Paul. Paul was doing the teaching. He was teaching the word of God. Now, does this mean that Paul was incapable of error? No. No. Paul could have erred, not in what he wrote in this, in these 13 books in the Bible, he didn't err. But in other areas of his life, he certainly did. He was human. Paul could have erred, but Timothy recognized that his teaching lined up with the word of God and therefore he followed it. And Paul is is encouraging him in that. In other words, Paul is saying that you you have not strayed from God's word, but you're holding fast to it. How does this mean I mean, does this mean that that Timothy is never going to diverge from the word of God? No. That's Paul's point in writing this. In fact, we see this all the time. Teachers that were once very good drift and therefore ought to be constantly tested against the backdrop of God's word. Paul was right to continue to encourage Timothy here. Yes, you are doing this now, but let me keep encouraging you. Hold fast to this. Constantly test what you're being instructed. Constantly look to what you, and remember what you've been taught. Timothy knew Paul. He's seen him, he, he's seen him suffer and be persecuted. And Paul then confirms the words of Jesus that a student isn't above his teacher. If Jesus was persecuted, then the disciples would be as well and they could expect the same. They find that in Matthew 10. Paul goes on to tell young Timothy to assure him that evil people and imposters are going to go from bad to worse, and many people will be deceived. I wish I had time to to dig into the the imposters and the the deceivers here. The the word deceive has the idea of of being seduced and and led astray. Just think about what Paul is, is warning Timothy. 
Not only are you going to be persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ, but many people are going to come to you claiming to be teachers of God's word. They're going to have these enticing things that sound really good, like they're basing them off scripture. And they're going to come to some wild conclusions. And you're going to be tempted to buy into that. They're going to seduce you. They're going to lead you into error. In this situation, it isn't going to stop. It's going to go from bad to worse. Now, Notice what Paul tells Timothy to do in the midst of all of that. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from where you have learned it. So what has Timothy learned from the Apostle Paul? Paul taught him the scriptures, the sacred writings. How these writings all pointed to Jesus. How one can be saved from their sin and how one can live an obedient life. All of this is found in the scriptures. And this is what Paul taught Timothy. And this is what Timothy believed, but not only Paul, right? From childhood, he was taught the scriptures by his mother and his grandmother. That's biblical grandparenting, by the way, if you're in that Sunday school class, teach children the word of God and then challenge them not to stray from it. Why? Because it's through the scriptures that one is made wide for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's verse 15. Don't be deceived. Get this, that even Timothy, the disciple of Paul, could have fallen into error. And what does Paul tell him to do? Remember what you've been taught. Cling to the word of God. Seek to understand it. Seek to obey it. Don't be led. Don't be deceived. And then in the previous chapter, we know this takes work. But now, just notice Paul's statement here in in verses 16 and 17 about the scriptures themselves. Look at that for a moment. All scripture. And we know when we read this that that Paul's talking about, and he's including the Old Testament and the New Testament that was in the process of being written. So when we say all scripture here, it's all 66 books of the Bible, the, the canon. Not some of them, not just the important parts, not just the parts that are in red. We don't elevate one portion over another, but recognize that all have their source in God himself. All scripture is inspired. That's how some translations word it. I think we get that, but it also carries some baggage with it. There are a lot of things that inspire us, make us feel good. Human beings are often inspired to write music. They're inspired to write poems and and books. Sometimes we talk that way. We even say, God inspired me to write a poem, meaning that something happened in our, in our devotional life or, or something happened while we were reading scripture and, and we wrote a poem based on that. We wrote music based on that. Often we say things like that, but we don't mean what's being meant here. The word inspired here in Greek comes from two words, the word God and breathe. Theos neustos. So the idea is that the scriptures were breathed out from God's innermost being. It's also important to note that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to the breath or the spirit of life. It's the word of God that brings life through his spirit. So the scriptures are alive because Douglas, as Douglas Van Dorn says, he says, all scripture has God as its speaker and its breather. All scripture is then profitable. In other words, it's able to to teach and educate us. 
It offers reproof and correction. When we're wrong, it tells us that we're wrong. But not only that, it points out, not only does it point out our error, but it, it corrects us and we get changed through the word of God. The Bible trains us. It makes us stronger. How so? The text says that we are trained in righteousness. What is right and wrong so that the believer might be equipped for every good work? Through it, you might be complete. It's the Bible that does that. Not anything else on the planet. Just think about this for a moment. This section talked about how Timothy's life and everyone, his life, everyone's life, that the scriptures are what makes one wise for salvation. So that's the start of the Christian life. Peter talks this way too. This isn't unique to Paul here. Peter says that we're born again through the word of God, 1 Peter 1. Paul talks about here continuing in the instruction of the Bible that we have been taught. He speaks of the origin of the scriptures being God himself and how it guides us and and corrects us and how through it we are made complete and equipped for every good work. So just think about this for a moment. Without the scriptures, there's no salvation. There's no training in righteousness. There's false teaching and moral error that are running rampant. And there is really no equipping for good works. In other words, we must see the scriptures as sufficient for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that you might be equipped for every good work. Because if it isn't for the scriptures, it's never going to happen. Or as the London Baptist Confession says it, for everything you need to come to faith in Christ, justification and sanctification in his sight. We do not need anything else on these fronts. The fact is there is nothing else. The scripture alone is sufficient. The scripture alone is enough. We don't seek other truth. We don't seek truth from other sources when it comes to these things. Salvation, growing in godliness. In closing, let me just point you. I want you to see the doctrine of sola scriptura or scripture alone. As, as it's presented here as a, as a moral imperative. And what I mean by that is that this doctrine, this truth is an attitude or a, a disposition of the heart. It's not, just a, it's not just a theological truth that's out there. A lot of people say that truth. A lot of people get it right. But it's something that needs to be implanted in us by God on on one level. It it can't be created in us. And when I say it's a moral imperative, I mean that there is a a moral command here to submit to the authority of the Bible. Seeing the scriptures as necessary and sufficient for our life is a, a submissive attitude in the heart. The word of God is authoritative. There is no question. God is its author. But the question for us is, what is the disposition of your heart toward the scripture? Is it arrogant? Is it, I'm going to use the scripture for my own benefit? I'm going to prove myself right and others wrong? It's one tool in my arsenal. 
Do we pride ourselves in getting it right in how much we read it? Or do we submit to it, recognizing that God has given us everything in this book that pertains to life and godliness? I would suggest that the teaching of Scripture itself is clear here, that there is a moral imperative to submit to it. It's God's word that governs our lives. We should come to it humbly, not arrogantly, working diligently to seek and discern its truth. And once we do that, we submit to it. We say, yes, God, you, you were right. I'm wrong. Our response when we read the scripture isn't just, yes, that's good truth. Yes, that's a good point. Our response when we read the scripture is, yes, I submit. Yes, I bow my heart before God. He's right, I'm wrong. We repent. We turn to him. We turn from our sin. We turn from our selfishness. We turn from our whatever it is. And we embrace him in faith because we recognize the scripture is enough. It is sufficient in these areas. If you want to be complete, if you want to be trained, you come to this word and you submit to it. One more thing. We noted that the scriptures have their origin in God. We think of God the Father. The Spirit takes and uses them. Think about that, although we didn't talk about it a lot, but it's true. But what about Christ? We need to recognize Christ himself on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection said that all of the scriptures was about him. Jesus is its central character. It all points to him because salvation is found in no other name. From the first chapters of the scripture, we see a, a tremendous longing for Jesus, one who will come and save their, his people from their sins. There's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And it's in the pages of scripture that we see both our need for a savior and we see the savior himself who was crucified and shed his blood for sinners so that we might have life and we might have it in his name. If you don't know Jesus and you don't know salvation, you're not going to find it anywhere else but this book. It's sufficient for life, godliness. You want to have life, eternal life? It's this book. It's where you know what you need. It's where you know the remedy for the consequences of sin. It all comes here, and it's enough. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.